0: And I think you educate your daughter probably a little differently than if you hadn't had those kind of experiences.
1: I do not teach my daughter stranger danger because it's not literally strangers that molest us.
0: Exactly. I
1: have told my children that if they – and my son, we need let's not leave boys out on this because boys are molested too – that I have told my children that they have a feeling, even if this is somebody that I have said is safe, I have taught them to recognize their own eternal compass, the spirit – Of what is right and wrong and if they are feeling that something is wrong is happening they do not have to be polite they can leave and there have been two different times um, in my daughter's life that somebody wasn't molesting her but they were violating her boundaries and that because of that she went no don't treat me like this and got out and molesters don't start with touching your privates they start with violating your boundaries they start with will you emotionally take this Which goes back to why it's so important that we are emotionally insulating ourselves to not allow an insult to say, no, I'm not okay with that. You don't get to talk to me like that. That is not being mean. That is not being unfeminine. That's honoring yourself. And where do you find that appropriate boundary if perhaps you came from a home or in a culture that we've all kind of come from that we have to be a certain way to be accepted. Sometimes we have to say things that are very hard for people to hear because they're true. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun.
0: Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. Hello, this is Laura Harris-Hills. I am the host of this episode of the LDS Perspectives Podcast. Today I am visiting with Lita Green as a flannel-clad member of the setup crew for her dad's mobile home moving company. Lita was raised in what she calls two extremes: truck stops and Provo, Utah. Not exactly spots that belch a beauty tips. So how did she, a shy tomboy with her share of scars, become a confident beauty expert? Here's a clue: it didn't involve a traditional makeover or even much makeup. She discovered the secret to lasting beauty, and it worked despite all the scars and truck stops. Now she works as a trainer, motivator, and sales strategist. Lita has been through numerous trials in her life, many of which are detailed in her book, which we will get to later. She is more than just a speaker on beauty and image. She speaks on life, how to deal with tragedy, change, and making commitments to oneself through goal-setting that works, She also has mastered an amazing ability to stay positive and choose happiness despite life's trials and tragedies. And having read her book, I would say she has a Ph.D. in life skills. Well, officially I get to be called Dr. Green now. Pretty exciting. (laughs) You have my permission. Tell everyone. Oh,
1: excellent. Yes. I've always wanted to be the queen of all things, but I don't want the control. Yeah, and but I I think being called doctor of anything would be great. So I'm going to say that I by the LDS Perspective podcast, I am a PhD. Great.
0: (laughs) Well, let's start with the first chapter of your book. I love the title, We're All Ugly Ducklings. How did you come up with that? Well, the thing is, as
1: a makeup artist, I've sat down with women, and they all start to tell me what they don't like about them. And these are the women often that are the hardest on themselves that we normal looking women would describe as swans. And I knew I was an ugly duckling. I knew I wasn't accepted. And I was the kid that was teased for what I look like directly instead of just being, oh, you're skinny, which is not really an insult, I don't think. I would have loved to been called skinny. I'm just a normal woman that was a little bit too tall for my age and didn't have all of my teeth and had red rashy skin and a bunch of stitches on my face. Not exactly the normal look. And so it was singled out and made fun of. And so I just thought, I'm not okay. I'm not acceptable. And I believe that and then realized that every single woman feels that way. And the the irony is that if we really get to the core of who we are, we're all beautiful, amazing, beyond anything we can understand. And it's just a matter of us tapping into our own unique beauty and having a perspective of not what the media says, but not what magazines say, what makes a model, but as I like to say, the source of he who is awesome. What's his perspective? Meaning God, being very clear so that everyone understands what we're talking about, that he has a perspective of what makes us special and unique. And the story of the ugly duckling is Magically, it's a swan and everything's good. But what if you're never a swan? What if you're still an awkward duckling? You still can be beautiful beyond comprehension. But you have to learn to accept how you are. I'm not going to change that I'm 5'9 and I'm sturdy built. That's never going to change. No matter what surgeries I have, you can't make my shoulders smaller and my feet smaller. But I'm still beautiful. I'm just not the beautiful I might have been aiming for.
0: I kind of had the opposite experience. I was the runt of the lot. And I always thought, well, I'm resurrected. I'm going to be tall, like Cindy Crawford. It was such a disappointment to find out, no, we're resurrected as our same selves. I will always be the runt of the lot. Well, an interesting Cindy
1: Crawford said, I wished I looked as good as Cindy Crawford.
0: When she woke up in the morning, right? No,
1: because she's like, I don't look like what you see depicted in magazines because it's so airbrushed. And the work that it takes to get her there and to maintain, Cindy Crawford didn't feel authentic evidently by that statement. And we were sharing earlier how I just kind of throw myself together and I still make a living in the beauty industry. I don't put a lot of time into it because there's a happy medium. There's all the knowledge I have as an expert in beauty And then there's the reality of I have children, and I have a life, and I like to get sleep. And so there's just only so much I'm willing to do. And it's just a matter of that first impression being good. And the first impression most people have of us is a smile. And you don't have to do much more than that to be a raving beauty.
0: That's true. It makes all the difference. Let's go back to that feeling of inadequacy that most women have. Part of it is built into our DNA. I am convinced part of it's because of what life has thrown at us. And like you said, most of us don't come out of the womb as beautiful swans. Probably the difference, wouldn't you say, is the self-esteem that we're able to build up over time. And as I read your book, you have a program to help women who may be struggling with feelings of inadequacy to work on building up that self-esteem so that they have the courage to project themselves in a way that will be more attractive to themselves and to others. Can you tell us what that is?
1: I want to say one thing, women that may, because then the women go, well, maybe I shouldn't. And the truth is, every single one of us struggles with accepting ourselves on a daily basis. Every single one of us thinks there's something wrong with us. And it is I think in our DNA and our self-critical nature, the human brain left alone eight will think eighty percent negative. But I think the female brain left alone, I don't know what the Harvard studies are on this, but I think that who I call the source of poop, the proliferator of poop, that this is a great tool that he uses against us to make us think we're not good enough to go for the great guy, to go for the great education, for go for the great opportunities. And I feel like the glass ceiling, though in history it has been inflicted by men nowadays i feel that it's us women not being feeling good enough about ourselves to go for what we really want and it goes back to how we not just perceive our beauty but perceive ourselves and so the program that i have is anything that we do repeatedly in the gospel we are encouraged to read our scriptures say our prayers to do these things that we're going to do every day to help mold us into having a relationship with god but what about the relationship with ourselves where do we take care of that All day long, you know, we're if we're moms, we're giving and loving and serving. And in our workplace, people are demanding of things of us. And all day long, we're pulled in different directions. When do we take care of ourselves and that relationship with ourselves? We're told it's vain. We're told we're not supposed to focus on ourselves because it's selfishness. But yet, we're going to live with us forever. We're going to deal with us forever. And most of our life choices are, do I have the guts to go get it?
0: Now, are we told that or do we just feel that?
1: I think it's a combination of both, from carryover from different generations of how women are supposed to be demure, and I was definitely given that. And unfortunately, who I am is not naturally demure, and I really struggled being quiet. I also have ADD, and it's hard to be quiet. And that little primary song where you're supposed to fold your arms and sit still and Not talk to your neighbor, and that's how you feel Jesus close. That was I. I just thought this is not good for me. This isn't going to work because it was hard to sit still. And I have found that my deepest prayers with God have been while I've been sweeping, and that I'm able to get more answers in action because of how my body and my brain chemistry work. Sitting and kneeling means going to sleep and taking a nap, and we're all little. We all have these different things. But going back to that idea of. We're allowed to have a relationship with ourselves and to take care of ourselves first. You cannot give from an empty well, and you cannot give what you do not possess. So if you really want to give acceptance to someone else or love to someone else, where is that coming from? And then as we as women, we give so much to the point that we are out, we're done, we don't have anything left because we're not putting into ourselves, and then we're mad that other people haven't filled us up. And so the exercise that I do, I call vanity prayers. And it's just for me, no one else. I go into the bathroom, and when I'm brushing my teeth, which everyone has to do, I'm like, man, you're good looking, and you're nice, and you're loving, and you're going to be amazing today. And I just give me all the validation that I need. And I just fill me up, and I'm kind to me. So it's easier for me to go give kindness. It's easier for me to give love. It's easier for me to give acceptance. It's I am building up my reservoir every day, and at night... I am assessing how I did, not criticizing myself, critiquing, analyzing, but approving of the best of what I can do.
0: And what I love about this, not only that it's multitasking, because women do function better sometimes, multitasking. We can't complain that we don't have the time because we're brushing our teeth.
1: Right. And it's a simple activity because complex multitasking does not work. But I had a man one time tell me that multitasking was a myth and that nobody could do it. And I tapped him on the arm and I said, that lets me know you don't have a uterus. Men do not, they have a different brain chemistry than we do, but we can brush our teeth and cook dinner and think about other things. These are simple tasks for us. We've done them before. And instead of noting what your brain is thinking at different times during the day, that might be a little complicated, but at least that one time where we have to Anytime I go into the bathroom, that is my pamper me place. Nothing comes in there that I would not say to my child because whatever I do say to myself eventually will come out on the children and others in my life. So I'm just really, really nice to me. And I just love on me. And I wake up and I'm, you know what you're going to do today? You're going to change the world, Lita. You are going to love. You're going to give. You're amazing and if i come across a part of my body that i don't like like my father's chin is incredibly not ideal for beauty magazines <laughs> i remember that i also inherited actually sh- it is you just told us they just airbrush
0: that right they out. just airbrush
1: it exactly right yeah and i tend to when i take pictures kind of exaggerate its largeness but you know from this chin that i inherited from my father i've replaced it and i go i also inherited my father's kind heart and his work ethic both of which things that have served me well. And so instead of being like, this isn't really an ideal chin compared to Jill down the street or the media images, this is my father's chin. This is my kind heart and work ethic. And I love my chin. And I play with my chin. And I pluck my chin.
0: (laughs) I think you've turned around what we do in the mirror. Usually we go, okay, how can I cover up that red spot? Oh, I have a new mole right there. So instead, we still are covering up those red spots with our foundation, but we're saying, what did I do good today? How can I lift someone else today? Or all I did today was serve others. Wasn't that great? That's what I'm supposed to be doing.
1: Absolutely. And the thing that's interesting, that our bodies are spiritual things. And when we look in the mirror into the subconscious through the eyes, our subconscious does not know the truth, the difference between a truth and a lie. It believes whatever we repeatedly tell it. So the example I use in my book is an anorexic. She's not actually fat. But she believes to the very core of who she is that she is. Because at some point, somebody told her she was or she had a a mental precondition towards this, but something triggered her. And every time she looked in the mirror and every time she got on a scale, she said, look how fat I am. Look how fat I am. If it's true for the negative, why isn't it true for the positive? And studies have shown That people's metabolism go up when they look in the mirror and say nice things. And I think if you look in the mirror and just say, I'm lovely, your eyes will be brighter. Your smile will be bigger. And if just your eyes and your face move more often throughout the day, that actually helps muscle flow. I mean, blood flow, which is going to reduce skin conditions. That's my kind of exercise program. Right, Right, but it actually, smiling will help your skin be healthier and help clear it up. Good to know.
0: I I need to just smile more and those red spots are going to go away.
1: (laughs) Well, it's what we focus on grows, as the gurus of motivation say, but the Bible says, as a man thinketh, so is he. And if you're focused on something so insignificant as a little red spot over what you're going to accomplish in the day, trust me, I've been looking at you intently into your eyes and have not noticed any red spots. I'm looking at you, your eyes. And I think other people look at your eyes. So we're focusing on our faults, both physically and emotionally, thinking that all of our faults are on display for the world, and they're not. Because the truth is, people aren't checking us out that closely. People are not watching for us to fail that closely, unless we're some kind of celebrity. But most of us are just, people want to like us because they got to deal with us. And yet we're, oh, oh, look what was wrong with me. And we're the ones putting it on display, not their looking, because they're too worried about them.
0: That's true. We think about our flaws more than other people do. You have this 80-20 rule. Yes. I think it applies to how we look at ourselves and how we look at our life. Can you explain that?
1: Yes. So I heard this in a business meeting that the 80-20 rule applies to everything, and they were talking about sales leads. And I really believe in the concept that if I hear something that's true— It's true for everything. So the gospel of Jesus Christ applies to every aspect of my life. So I have a code of ethics of how I live, not just at church or interacting with my church friends, but my ethics stream over into my work. I won't steal a lead from someone else because that's stealing. And the Bible says not to. So I don't do that. I'm trying to live in congruency in every part of my life. So if I hear truth, does this apply? So if this guy is saying it's true— is it true? And I'm thinking, yeah, for the spiritual, I probably read my scriptures at least 20% of the time, but <laughs> I should, all right, read it 80% of the time. And so I started thinking, and my mom said that if you're a good parent, at least 80% of the time, your kids will remember that. And I thought, sweet, I can do 80% of the time be amazing. And my kids, my daughter just told me yesterday, I'm the best mom ever. And I'm like, awesome brainwashing has gone down, right? So with our bodies, I think that most of us are 80% great. We're 80% lovely and beautiful. And if we're over that, we don't feel like we're 80%, it's probably because we've had so much what I call poopy talk that we've broken down our metabolisms. we've broken down our health, we've broken down our perception of ourselves, and we can work on that because it's not our size or our waistline that determines our beauty. There's all different shapes and sizes that are beautiful. And my body is not happy under a certain weight, which is where the BMI says I'm supposed to be. I'm not healthy. I don't feel vibrant under that weight. And so that means I weigh a little bit more than they say I should, but I don't think they measured my shoulder span. And they haven't seen my six foot three, 300 pound father that kind of scares people when they see him, even though he's a big teddy bear. They're not looking at all these things. They're looking at one little factor to determine if we're healthy, and yet we do the same thing to determine if we're beautiful. One little what's our waste, what's our bust, and we are so much more than that.
0: I think arbitrary labels are really big in our society right now, and we buy into those, and that's what you're addressing. One thing that came through to me in your book was that you had gone through many, many trials, but I didn't perceive any bitterness or any blame You were free in giving forgiveness, and we all know we should forgive, but you actually do it. Can you share with us how you've been able to overcome some of the trials that you've gone through?
1: One of the things that I'm proud of is that if you were to first meet me, you would never know that I'd been through those things. Because what I want when people first meet me is to feel happy. I want them to feel the the heat and the love and the good that I'm putting off because I feel that that's part of what it means to represent Jesus Christ. And I've also learned from early challenges that carrying around the resentment didn't hurt the people that I was I mean, duh, we all know this. It did not hurt them at all. In fact, it empowered them. My feeling fearful or hurt or holding back just empowered them to hurt me more. And so by learning to find that place, which is not something that happens instantly. I don't want anyone to go, well, she's done it. I should be able to be over it by now. It's something that I pray about. It's something that I work hard and I get to the point where I can pray for them. And I work at it. And sometimes there are some people that have taken me a couple of years to forgive for some of their actions and some longer and some less. But it's something that I work at not only in my vanity prayers, but in my sweeping the floor time <laughs> of my prayer time with God. And when I note that thought coming into my mind, I'm like, how does this serve me? And I I have this little imaginary uh, strainer like you would to get pasta cleaned out that I put on my head. And I ask those thoughts, hey, Thought, are you helping me to be amazing or awesome? Are you helping me to love and serve? And if it's A bitter thought, if it's a blaming thought, if it's a jealous thought, if it's thoughts of how dare they, because we've all had the how dare they events happen to us, that's not helping me to go forward in love. And I've learned that there are family patterns that exist, and they are a victim of those family patterns, and I can choose to be or not. And because I'm aware that it's a pattern and
0: that it's not ideal, who's responsible for that? Me. Your book is big on agency. You choose how to react to things that happen to you. A lot of educating goes on when I talk to people and I tell them, when I'm just getting to know them, I'll say, yes, I'm on my third marriage. And instantly, they will think all of these thoughts because of these labels we have and these concepts maybe we have in this church, and I'll stop them right there and I'll go, no this is a good thing. I was married to three wonderful men. It didn't work out, but all parties involved are happy now. I think sometimes these labels that get put on people, it's if you don't accept them and you educate and say, no, it's okay. This happened to me, but I've moved beyond it. I've learned, I've used it as a growing experience What is one trial you've had that you feel like you've been able to use to educate people that, okay, this really bad thing happened, but it's also been a blessing in my life?
1: Well, this might surprise you in my answer, but the first thing that came to my mind was I was molested from a young age to about 13 years old. And when I went to go serve my mission for the LDS Church among the deaf, Because the first area that I served in was an oralism state, so they didn't teach him sign language, which language was very, we could talk the whole time about this because I love it, but we won't. Language, when we do not think in language, we don't have a language, it limits our capacity to only communicate, but in order to communicate complicated ideas. And so let's say you've never been taught the word for vagina or penis, or, you know, these are words you can't explain what just happened to you, right? So you basically have a silent victim because you were never taught that word so they don't even know where to even categorize it. And every single deaf woman in the Michigan area, not just in the church, but every single one, confessed to me or cried to me or expressed to me that they had been molested. And my missionary companion was like, what are you, some kind of magnet for confessionals? And I didn't, because it wasn't appropriate as a missionary to necessarily say, I've had this experience. I knew the words. I knew what to say. I knew how to hug them. I knew how to comfort them. And I knew to bear testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ. That was the only answer because these are things that are hurtful, that are hard, that are not going to be okay. And we need to understand the atonement. When I've seen how many people I've been able to help, there are times that I've been, wow, I'm so glad that happened to me. And then I'm like, wait a minute, that was really bad. And I don't like that. And though I have a very happy, intimate life with my husband, When it was coming up to our wedding, I'm like, look, I don't know if this is going to be okay with me. I don't know if I'm going to be okay with it. And there are still to this day, even though we're very happy, certain things we just can't do because of that. But yet, how thankful I am that I have been able to impact probably thousands and thousands of people in private conversations because of that experience, that it's worked for my good and worked for the good of others. And yet, Though there are some residual effects of it, I'm like mama bear. Like, don't even look at my daughter (laughs) twice. Uh, Are those bad things? I don't think they really are. It's it's okay.
0: And I think you educate your daughter probably a little differently than if you hadn't had those kind of experiences.
1: I do not teach my daughter stranger danger because it's not literally strangers that molest us.
0: Exactly. I
1: have told my children that if they, and my son, we need, let's not leave boys out on this because boys are molested too. That I have told my children that they have a feeling, even if this is somebody that I have said is safe, I've taught them to recognize their own eternal compass, the spirit of what is right and wrong. And if they are feeling that something is wrong is happening, they do not have to be polite. They can leave. And there have been two different times um, in my daughter's life. That somebody wasn't molesting her, but they were violating her boundaries. And that because of that, she went, no, don't treat me like this, and got out. And molesters don't start with touching your privates. They start with violating your boundaries. They start with, will you emotionally take this? Which goes back to why it's so important that we are emotionally insulating ourselves to not allow an insult to say, no, I'm not okay with that. You don't get to talk to me like that. That is not being mean. That is not being unfeminine. That's honoring yourself. And where do you find that appropriate boundary if perhaps you came from a home or in a culture that we've all kind of come from that we have to be a certain way to be accepted? Sometimes we have to say things that are very hard for people to hear because they're true.
0: So you've named one thing that affects self-esteem for a lot of women. Before we came on air, you mentioned that maybe 30% of women were molested
1: yeah, so one out of 3 actually. One out of 3 women not just assaulted or you know had derogatory comments said to them have actually been physically molested to raped.
0: And part of what we can do as parents is to teach our children to have boundaries. Yes. What is appropriate and not appropriate. Another thing that is even more prevalent that affects our self-esteem is being around toxic individuals. And you have a story about that as well.
1: Yes. Well, I have the story I shared in my book. The story I share is about grandma. And really, it wasn't just grandma. It's a whole entire culture of what you have to be. And I accepted it. I believed it because I was raised with it. And even those who loved me, who would want to protect me, We're also part of this culture in a different aspect than being the aggressor. But mean things were said to me that were not okay. You're fat. You're ugly. You're not going to be loved. You're not pretty enough. You're not smart enough. I mean, really mean things. When I was sexually molested, my grandmother, I'm not even sure if I can even say it on the air, what she said to me. And as an adult, I realized a lot of that was they just couldn't deal. And they would have had to feel guilty. And the retribution that some people wanted to have towards my molester, even though the anger was so great that they actually kind of forgot that I was there and needed protection and love. And we get so wrapped up in what our feelings are that we kind of forget the feelings of others and little children. And one particular individual um, has always just—anything that I've ever done wrong has always been my fault, and they've never said sorry anything like that, and we don't have to go into all the history of exactly what these things were, because I think every audience member can identify with that person that you're always wrong, they're always right. And I've come up with a formula that how we love people, if we have like a bullseye, in the very center bullseye is just you and God. No one else gets to be there. And abusers, molesters, toxic people are always trying to be there, right in that little center bullseye meaning in our head, in our thoughts, that we have to take care of our actions and words according to please them. And as we move out the bullseye, there are the people in our life in the sphere of influence. The only people I allow into that just outside the center bullseye are people that can do three things, that they can love me. Now, there's a lot of people that I love that I don't like as people. They have to be able to trust, be trustworthy. And this is the most important one where most people get tripped up is do they take responsibility? And it's as simple as, as, uh, you know, you're driving down the road and you get lost and they're driving and you say, oh, remember when we wanted to turn here and they go, well, you didn't speak up loud enough. That's someone who's not taking responsibility. And I would be looking at those kinds of things in my life. And I noticed that I was able to start label toxic people, that when it came to the real crunch time of my life, death and dying, they couldn't be there for me. And I couldn't blame them because they never had been able to emotionally be there for me. Our relationship was based upon me being there for them, and so I moved them out in the sphere of the influence of my life. I still love them, but if you can't take responsibility, why do I have you close? Why am I having you in my life in a place of influence over myself and my children if you're not willing to be responsible for something as silly as a wrong left turn in your
0: life? Does that make sense? It does because they're emotional vacuums and they distract you from what's really important.
1: They distract, and, distract us from our relationship with Jesus Christ because they make us think that we're not okay. And if we don't think we're okay, then we're not willing to pray. And if we're not willing to pray, then we don't use the atonement. And atonement, saying the atonement of Jesus Christ is for sin, is minimalizing what the atonement really is. Most of us have maybe not had sins that have driven us to our knees, but we've had
0: life events that have. Absolutely. We all have had those times where we've said, Jesus, take the will. We're done. I can't do this. This is too hard for me to do on my own. Now, we've talked in broad terms, but in your book, you give us tools. I love tools. Exercises to do. Some of them are kind of difficult, like (laughs) list what's good about you and list what you don't really love. And sometimes we don't want to write those kind of things down. But then you give us a tool for handling those things we don't really love. So I would suggest that listeners go to her book, which will be in the show notes, and go through some of those exercises. I cannot tell you how much I got out of this book and how much it made me feel like, yes, I can overcome some of those things that are holding me back, making me feel inadequate. So just, if you could, in five sentences, sum up what you think the secret is to a lasting makeover from the inside out.
1: So the theory of what makes us hot, and I am hotness in my book is How to Embrace Your Inner Hotness, because we have mislabeled what it is. What is hot is how we choose to affect other people. Do we burn them or do we embrace them? Do we aid them or are we out of control? The secret to happiness and a lasting makeover is choosing to note what you are doing, you alone, no one else, what you alone are doing. And you will find greater happiness there because you're able to access God's perception of you and His help. But as long as you are looking to other people to make you happy, to fix you, to do anything for you, they will fail you because they are human.
0: Thank you so much, Lita, for your time. Oh,
1: thank you. I love being on. And I just want to be able to share that Everything that you have said kind about me, everything that you see, that light in my eyes, all of that is because of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the making of me. And I know that because I've sat many a time on the side of my bed and I said, God, help me. And He's continuing to do that. And I know that that is true for the listeners, that if we just learn to get all the crap out of our head that's stopping us from asking for His help, He will help us and it will be enough and we will find that we are more than enough. Thank you, Lita. Thank you. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. But I also see a lot of really wonderful inclusions of Heavenly Mother in not just our creation, but in some things, other parts of the plan of salvation, that she has care for us here. She can interact for our good. Jeffrey, Holmes' wife, said that, and there are some other really beautiful statements that just like our father and mother care about us here and have influence over us, Harold B. Lee said that she too has influence over us here and
0: cares for us. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone. An LDS Perspectives podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS Church leaders, policies, or practices.